Please do open your Bibles to uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It is so lovely to see your faces again this evening after three weeks apart, and uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be with you all, to worship God, and to open His Word together. Um, I woke up feeling a little under the weather this morning, and a couple of times my voice cracked, sound like a prepubescent boy while I was preaching this morning, so um, let's hope you'll be spared from that this evening, and that we get through. Um, it's so good to be together, though, and uh, we're all slightly plumper and larger after a Christmas break, aren't we? Which is good, me the most. I want to take you into Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians 4. And we've been, those, the first half of that chapter, verse 1 to 16, um, Paul is chasing a theme. Um, it's a united passage, but we have taken a couple of weeks or a few weeks to take this apart and understand his different ideas and emphases that come through in this passage. So I just want to read a few select verses as we open it up again for a final time, this section. If you look, just glance down through the passage at the beginning, he says, I, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of, of the calling to which you have been called. And then in verse 3, he's urging them to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And it seems to me that that is the, the essential idea that he wants to get through to these believers here in this section. Cast our eyes down a little further to verse 11. And we'll read there through to 16. He says that Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's just bow our heads and pray for a moment. Father, the high call and vision of what the church is meant to be and the way in which we are to engage with your work in your body is one, Lord, that we long to participate in and pray that we be gripped by and empowered for. I pray something of the infectious delight and joy that Paul had about the church will become ours, Lord. And Lord, that you will equip and strengthen us to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the big idea in this whole section in the letter is that he's wanting to give a vision for um, church growth, essentially. And normally that phrase speaks of numerical growth, which is something that we can celebrate insofar as people coming to know Jesus and becoming part of his, his fellowship, part of his community. And Paul was very passionate about growth in that sense, of reaching the lost. But he's particularly interested here in growth in terms of maturing, 
in terms of health, in terms of the unity and maturity of the church as a body. That's the, the theme, essentially, of what is gripping him here. And he began, therefore, by speaking about personal godliness. It's how he began this passage. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So that insofar as our lives resemble Jesus, we become an influence of grace upon the fellowship. We bring peace and joy to each other. And so godliness is essential. But then he began to speak about the necessity of each one of you in terms of your gifts and the ways in which God has equipped you to serve the body. He listed the the leadership that Christ has appointed over his church as apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers. But he said that they're there to serve the saints and in order to equip everyone for the work of ministry. So each of us is a gospel minister. And so these are the ideas that we've been unpacking um, prior to the Christmas break. Towards the end of this passage, though, as it comes to a kind of a crunch moment and really brings home this passionate message of our essential contribution, the way in which we contribute to the health of Christ's body, what he does here is, what he's saying here really exposes a problem. And the problem is this, that there's a gap between the vision of what the church, Christ's body on earth, is meant to be. And you can see that particularly in verse 13, that we're to attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I think all of us can at least conceive of the church as something extraordinary and magnificent, even if you have never seen it in that way before. You can imagine it. A community of love and of togetherness and of unity and of of maturing and becoming more like a Jesus and so extending his reach and his influence into every corner of the world. But there's a distance, isn't there, between what the church is meant to be and what Paul sees in his mind and what the church so often has become. And I think we feel this at multiple levels. We feel it personally, don't we, when we recognize that our own lives, if you're a believer in Christ, a follower of Christ, you recognize that there's a distance between your, per- your confession of faith and your ability to live it out. And at the times, out-and-out hypocrisy. But if not hypocrisy, then at least a sense of inadequacy and of shortcoming. And if that's true of each of us individually, then the collective also expresses that. If you take a community like this one and look at us Um, objectively, you'll see good things at work in the life of the church as a community, but you'll also see things that are disappointing. You'll see things that are disheartening. And churches can, you know, they can grow very sick. You can have churches that are cold towards Jesus. You can have churches that are religious in their outworking, in the worst sense of that word, that whatever hate and life and love once was among the gathering has long since dissipated and what's left in its stead is a kind of carcass of spirituality, something dead and lifeless. You can see all these kinds of things. You can see impurities that affect communities where whole churches are a discredit to Jesus because they no longer look like him in any real way. 
and churches that are divided by the infighting and the ungodliness that can so often exist within any community, but can also exist within churches. So if it's true at the individual level and the level of us as a community, it's true when you scan the wider scene also and you consider the church at large. If you think of the church in the city or the church in the nation, and there are sicknesses that become systemic within the broader Christian scene. And the Western church in particular seems to have been deeply infected by the sicknesses of individualism and of consumerism. And it's corrupting so much of the way we experience and, and model faith to the world. And so all I'm trying to help you to see, friends, is that there is a distance. There is this great tension, isn't there, between what we are meant to be as something magnificent, world-changing, the salt and the light that Jesus spoke about and what the church is so often instead and what we as individuals can be when our confession isn't matched by our practice. And to me, this is not a secondary issue. The Lord Jesus Christ died for his bride, the church. And the health and life and vitality of the church is one of the most important gifts to the world. If a non-believer wants to understand the God who made them and come to know him, the vehicle through which Christ has made provision is his bride, is the body, is the church. And yet so often people are disgusted or hold the church at arm's length because of her inadequacies and shortcomings. And it may even be the case if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, you will have experienced hurt in the context of the church. And that hurt can do damage to your walk with the Lord. It can cause cynicism to creep in. It can cause distrust to creep in. It can cause you to maintain arm's length in self-protective stance. And all of this is harmful and damaging and dangerous. And so evidently, all I'm trying to convince you of at the outset here is that the calling is that if the church has a destination, which is something breathtaking and beautiful and magnificent and world-changing, then I want to appeal to you to seek to kind of recruit you to the cause. Not to give in or to give up, but to understand that every one of you has a place and a calling within Christ's greater mission to help the church be what it is meant to be. Now, in order to unpack this, I want to, first of all, begin with the negative dimension, as though I haven't been negative enough already. But let me try and help you understand Paul's unique perspective here. What was it? Here's the question I want to ask with you. What was it that kept Paul awake at night? What was it that troubled the Apostle Paul? when he thought about the various churches that he had founded and planted across the Greco-Roman world and was distanced from them, what is it that, that, that stirred and troubled his, his mind and his heart as he thought about the condition of those churches? We know that he carried them in his heart in this way. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 in a passage in which he lists the many ways in which he has suffered for Jesus. Speaking of beatings and persecutions and shipwrecks and things like this. And to cap it all and crown it all, 
it would seem, the final thing he mentions here is that he says, and apart from all these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Here's a man who's carrying something like chronic stress in a sense. I'm sure that he knew how to process that with the Lord, but it was a burden that he felt deep in his soul, the, the, the anxious concern for the state of the churches. And my question is, what exactly is it that bothered him? I think you can understand the answer to this when you begin to take account of the context and mission that Jesus had given to him. The church was born in the Jewish city of Jerusalem. The original apostles had a ministry to preach to their Jewish brothers and sisters and enable them to come to know the Lord. Christ who fulfilled their Jewishness and their Judaism. The Apostle Paul was not given that same task. His task, rather, was to go outside the walls of Judaism and bring the gospel to the pagans, to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And that was a radically different calling that led to all kinds of issues and troubles for him. Think about this for a moment. First of all, the fact that he had to share Christ and establish church communities among people who had no prior knowledge or very little prior knowledge of God and his ways, unlike the Jews. And it'd be like me setting you the challenge of forming this year a tech startup. And you get to choose your team that you form it with. Are you going to choose a bunch of computer science graduates or some Amish grandparents who have never touched a computer before in their lives? And Paul was set the, the second challenge. He had to go in among these people who didn't know God, who either worshipped many gods or no God at all, many of whom had multiple wives, the men, or had owned slaves, or had, or had sacrificed their children in, in bloody rituals, or these kinds of, these kinds of um, ways of living and thinking, and then confront them with the claims of the one true God and of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for their sins. They were not a people prepared for that message. And then layered on top of that was another challenge, that he very rarely had the luxury of spending very much time in one place. Now, I, I've been leading this church now since we founded it um, a little over eight years ago. And the idea of leaving the church fills me with horror for the simple fact that I think the work isn't done, nowhere near done. And yet Paul either hounded and chased out of cities after weeks or months in one place, or because of the pressure on his soul, the urgency of bringing the gospel to new places, whatever the reason was, he had to keep on the move. And so he very, very rarely spent any considerable time in one place, establishing the depth of knowledge and understanding and the foundations that would strengthen a local church. Then on top of that was another problem. That even as he left them, he had very little to leave with them except for the teaching that he had imparted and that lived in their memories. Imagine if I could erase 
all the Bibles, and you only had your own mind and memory and the attention that you'd been giving, listening to me and Jeremy of the, of the time that you'd been here at Grace, out of which to then teach others. I know all of us would, I would struggle if that was the challenge for me. And yet Paul was left with this challenge. He had to lead these people in that position. They didn't have a New Testament. It hadn't been written for the most part. And it wasn't in their possession. And then on top of that was another problem, that wherever he went or whenever he left a place, very often there were these men who came in behind him, infiltrating the churches and trying to corrupt and destroy the work that he had begun. And you put all of that together and you can begin easily to understand the answer to the question, what is it that troubled Paul? And the answer, it seems to me, was the vulnerability because of the infant faith that his converts had, that they were vulnerable to their faith being corrupted and distorted and destroyed. And that's what he's saying here in Ephesians 4 and verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, he says, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. I know that this is what troubled Paul. I'll give you an example of, of this. When he's speaking to the elders of this same church, the last time he ever saw them face to face, we have a very moving speech recorded in Acts chapter 20. He wanted to see them because he knew the Holy Spirit had told him that he was going to be arrested when he went to Jerusalem, which was his next um, destination. So he called the elders of the Ephesian church and he, he gives them a kind of parting speech. It's one of my favorite moments in the Bible as he's, he's, he's pouring out his heart to them. And he says to them things like this. He says, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. You see, he'd spent two years in Ephesus, which I think is the longest he spent in any one place. And he says, in the two years that I was with you, for all the many hours that I taught you every single week, I imparted everything I knew to you. So the Ephesian church was actually in a better position than almost any other church, that, probably any other church that Paul had planted. And yet he immediately goes on and says this. He says, I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This is the problem, friends. If there is an unalloyed, pure vision of what the Christian faith is meant to be theologically and in practice... It is always in danger of being corrupted, whether in doctrine or in practice, by the malicious intents of many. And it troubled Paul in the deepest parts of his soul. How can we have healthy churches? And I suppose it raises the question, is that a problem that we face today? If Paul was speaking to people who had no prior knowledge of God, no heritage, then what about us? Are we as vulnerable now as they were then? And in one sense, I want to say no. Because we do have centuries-long heritage of the gospel in our nation that's formed us in ways that we are barely even conscious of. And we do have established churches and ministries. 
And we do have pastors who are able to remain rooted in one place and be consistent in preaching and teaching and opening up God's word. And we do have endless resources to enable us and instruct us and feed us and grow us, including, most importantly of all, the Bible and the New Testament as it's completed. But even then, even then we do not take for granted that we have attained maturity, that we are invulnerable. Partly just by the nature of how faith is learned. it's It's not passed down in your genes. Every generation must learn afresh the unchanging truth of God's word and be built upon it. And more than that, if Paul faced a problem in a pre-Christian world of teaching pagans what it means to know the living God, we face the opposite problem of a post-Christian world in which so many of the things that might have been taken for granted a mere 50, 60, 70 years ago are now questioned and have been dismantled. So the assumptions that we live and breathe in our day-to-day lives are very often directly opposed to the Bible and to what God has said about himself. And I wonder, are we even equipped to think about these issues? One of the great challenges we face is widespread biblical illiteracism. The fact that so many do not read the Bible and certainly do not know it. And what that creates within the context of the Christian scene, within churches, is this vulnerability that Paul's talking about here. The danger of being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, like a ship on a wild sea, out of control of its own destination and unsafe. That's the image that he's painting. He'd been in that very situation On numerous occasions, he knew what he was talking about in the real sense. And it's the image that comes to mind when he thinks about the danger that companies like ours, churches, gatherings like ours, are always vulnerable to. Let me just highlight one way in which I see this affecting affecting us on the broader scene and even in our own church. There was a time... when looking back in, the his, in history, that because the knowledge of God and the reality of God was taken for granted, most people were raised in the, an atmosphere, the kind of air of breathing, the reality of the God of Scripture and of His love, but also of His judgment and of His wrath. But somewhere in the 1800s, all of these things that might have been taken for granted began to be questioned. As humanity began to assert itself in the scientific age, in the age of technology, humans began to imagine that we had outgrown these sorts of primitive, primitive ideas of religion and of who God is. And new versions of Christianity began to roll off the printing presses and be preached from the pulpits in which We can scrub out those elements that we consider primitive and outdated and keep only those elements that we we feel benefit us. And so God was sort of declawed and defanged 
and the fear of God was emptied out of how the Christian faith was believed and practiced in churches. So language of judgment. The wrath of God. The necessity of Christ as the only way to God. All of these things were deleted. And it seems to me that even if we don't share those beliefs in our church, nevertheless, the wider vision of this more tolerant notion of how faith ought to be believed and practiced has so crept into just the, our assumptions and the way we think and the way we feel to an extent that we don't even realize it. This was taking place all through the last century. In the middle of the last century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian, described what he was observing of the problem of cheap grace. And I think he captured this issue that though we believe in the grace of God revealed to us through the death of Christ on the cross as the only redemption for our sins and of the free gift of life through him, nevertheless, he described cheap grace as the problem of taking this for granted and not living without the fear of God. And this is why it is so easy for Christians in our day and age to live a very selective approach to the faith in which we want to take those parts that please us, that comfort us, that affirm us, but live in direct opposition to the scripture in ways that we simply disagree with it. And never more so, I think, than the areas of sex and of sexuality in which God's word is very clear on these issues and God himself sets the boundaries of the gift of what, what he's given to us through sex and yet nevertheless, we live in an age of the affirmation and tolerance of anything even in the name of Christ and of inclusivity. And you can begin to see very quickly how the very thing that, that caused Paul to feel an agitation in his soul and in his spirit Living as he was in an age that actually had perhaps had more in common with our present age. Living as he was in that age, the things that troubled him. This is what he's speaking about, friends. That we may no longer be children. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You know, these days we may not have the same bad actors that they experienced then of individuals moving in and among churches, spreading the kinds of troublesome ideas that corrupted churches. But we can find whatever teaching suits us with a few clicks online, can't we? And it's having the relentless effect of destroying the faith of many. You know, I've seen people who once were very public professors of Jesus now using all of their platform online to deliberately dismantle the things that they now ridicule about the Christian faith. And that has a wearing effect. And if we're not rooted and grounded, what happens? We're swept away, as Paul says, by every wind of doctrine. It's attractive, isn't it? To think that we can stay in step with the times rather than stick in what seems outdated and offensive and, and bigoted. 
And all of us know that tension in the heart. This is what Paul's talking about, friends. The same human need to be accepted, to have our ears tickled with what satisfies our own minds and affirms our own choices, rather than seeking to honor the Lord. How can this be remedied? The image that comes to my mind as Paul deals with the solution here, how we can have healthy and robust and mature churches. The image in my mind is of the body's immune system. He does refer to the church here in multiple ways as a body. And what he seems to be describing here is a body in which there is health running through it and a strong immune system. Your immune system is a remarkable thing. Your body is exposed to pathogens on a daily basis, whether they be viruses or parasites or bacteria. And in most cases, when when your immune system isn't compromised, Those infections, those threats are dealt with without your mind ever becoming aware that they were a threat. Legions of cells spring into action and begin to make war against any invasive organisms into your body. And you are kept healthy by that means. And it seems to me that something like that happens when the church is healthy and robust and strong. That almost unconsciously, in a, an uncoordinated way, the body collectively, and I speak about the body as a community, all of us collectively, are able to maintain health together in an uncoordinated way because that health permeates the whole body. That's what he's describing here, and I want you to fix that vision in your mind. And there are a few ways that he describes this happening. I want to just quickly open them up to you. The first is this, that you... And I mean you, I don't mean the person to your left or to your right. I mean you if you're a follower of Jesus. It begins with you seeing your own role and responsibility to help the church grow in health and maturity. That you begin to understand that it's not just the role of leaders or of professionals or of those whose names and faces are on websites to protect and guard and lay before the health of the church, but rather that that is democratized, that it's spread through the whole community of believers. And this is something that is emphasized in numerous places here in this passage. We saw it the last time we opened it in verse 11 and 12. You remember how in verse 11, Paul said that Christ has given to the church these gifts of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. In other words, the word ministries that pioneer and lead and expand the the kingdom of God. But then he says that, the role, that their role is, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain the unity of the faith and so on. In other words, the church is not to be a front-led organization in many ways. But rather what Christ designed when he structured the church was a system in which every person who is a professing Christ follower understands that they are a minister of the gospel. And that they carry then the dignity and the responsibility of serving the wider body. 
And this is something that comes through again in this final section that we're looking at from verse 14 to 16. He says it there in verse 15 when he says, you know, in contrast to the problem that could have, have been tossed around by every wind of doctrine, he says, rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into, into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly. Do you hear what he's saying there? When every part is working properly, when every church member understands their function within the body, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up, he says, in love. This is not something that it just comes from the mind or from one part of the body. It's not an executive leadership. This is the way the body functions collectively for its health. And this is, this is how your body actually works, if you think about it. That every part of your body helps benefit the rest of your body in some way. You, know, very, you don't often think about your teeth, but your teeth ensure the health of the rest of your body by grinding up the nutrients that you need each day so that they can be dispersed throughout the entire body, right? Your eyes benefit your brain when you fix them and, them and, and, and fix their attention upon good and healthy things to grow and expand your understanding, like reading good books. Your hands can strengthen your back and your hamstring and your buttocks when you wrap them around a heavy object like a barbell and then attempt to pick it up. And so each part of the body is benefiting other parts of the body and bringing health to the whole thing, to the whole system. And this is what Paul's describing here when he says, look, there is the possibility that we'll be stuck in childlike infancy and immaturity that makes us vulnerable. And that is the key characteristic of children, isn't it? Their vulnerability. But the way in which we protect ourselves from vulnerability is when all the body understands, every part of the body understands its function within the whole organism and is devoted to that vision. And it is a compelling one, friends. From day one of founding this church with the, those folk who helped us establish this church, it was our intention that every person have a role and a function within the church. And sometimes that's formal, sometimes that's informal. But believe me, it, it was very much every part of the body doing its work from the very beginning, and that's been our constant, strenuous desire and effort to ensure that that continues as the church has grown. And it begins with you having a personal, vital, living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ so that each day you're walking with him, growing in your faith. But then you are useful for the strengthening and health and maturing of those around you for the rest of the church. In other words, look, this is, to me, this is a massive mindset shift if you get it. Perhaps the nearest equivalent is, is what you can think of that exists between healthy companies and, and unhealthy companies. And in a healthy company, every employee understands their position within the wider vision and is enthused to participate in their work. An unhealthy one, there's many people who are just, you know, to use a, a kind of English phrase, we describe it as jobs worth. They're basically just doing the bare minimum to get a paycheck and go home. They don't really care about the bigger picture. The same is true, doesn't it, in, in healthy, vibrant sports teams. Every person understands their role. 
And it must be true within the church. And it means, in, in very practical terms, it means things like this. If the danger, of course, remember, the backdrop here is immaturity, infancy, people being swept away by wrong ideas and ways of living. It means this. It means that you, when you see the doubter, you want to move towards them and understand them in their doubt and walk with them and help them. Even if you don't know the answers, you want to help them find the answers or learn together. It means that when you see a brother or sister in Christ who is suffering with temptation, and temptation is a form of suffering, isn't it? Especially when you feel overwhelmed and crushed and like you're drowning under it. What you need in that moment is a brother or a sister to pull you out. And though the Lord Jesus Christ promises to be an aid and a support to you in those moments, he also supplies the church. And it means that you understand your role to help a brother or a sister out of trouble. You see a friend wandering away from the faith or walking into a compromise that ultimately will shipwreck or destroy their faith. You don't wait for someone else to intervene. You see it as your role because you love them to get involved. It means when you see someone in suffering, you want to be the person who moves towards them with comfort in, ca in case their suffering turns into something ugly and destroys their faith as can so easily happen. We love each other, therefore we move towards one another. It means that you want to welcome the stranger. We want a welcoming church, don't we? But that doesn't, that's not a role that's occupied by a few. It's a role that we own together. And you understand that your role is to welcome the stranger, that that is part of the way God has treated you, and it's an expression of your belief in the gospel to bring the stranger into fellowship. It means that you want to help the immature believer. That when you know somebody who's come to faith, they're newly walking with Jesus, you don't just want to see them flapping about and unsure of how to figure things out. You want to help establish them and put them on firm footing and get them going, meet up with them, talk with them, pray with them, urge them on, encourage them, love them. I don't know if you've thought about yourself in these terms. Friend, if not, there is a whole world of possibility that opens up to you as a minister of the gospel. How can you ever complain of feeling redundant or sidelined within the context of the church when there is so much to do? And I want to ask you, maybe even in this moment, the Lord is putting in your mind and in your heart a friend, a brother or a sister in Christ who needs you. What do you need to do even now as you leave this place to move towards the issue that God has positioned you to be a solution or part of the solution to? What do you need to change in terms of your posture and your habits towards the church as a community or as a family in order that you can be fully alive and a contributing member? These are the questions I want you to wrestle with. A vibrant, healthy church is one in which every person has asked and answered those questions and said yes to Jesus. I want to help. I want to be part of this. That's the first thing he says. Another thing then that's attached to this. If you've seen your role as essential, the next thing I want you to see is that you have to then cherish the vital importance of truth and of doctrine 
as the means by which Christ makes his church grow and mature. This is what he says so clearly here in this contrast here, verse 14 to 15. The 14th verse, remember, he's described to us the danger of childishness in which we're tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Children are inherently vulnerable because they are gullible and can be swept away by anything that you can think in your mind to convince them of. It's fun sometimes with your children. But then he says, rather, speaking the truth in love. And he is not, let me emphasize this, he is not exclusively speaking about the role of preachers within the the church family. Remember, he's speaking of the collective responsibility of the church as a community. Rather, speaking the truth in love, he says, we're to grow up. Now, to understand this, you've got to recognize the terrifying and sobering reality that every Christian In fact, every human is a theologian. Because all of us have a theology, even if we don't believe in God. And your theology, your vision of who God is or who God isn't, if that's your way of thinking, but your vision of who God is affects and infiltrates every dimension of your life. It affects your feelings and your thoughts and your actions and your words and your mission in life and your habits, everything is a reflection of and a demonstration of the things that you believe about God. And this means that whenever you put two people together, their theologies are discipling one another, shaping each other. A community of people is a discipling community. It's not just what takes place. Discipleship isn't just what takes place in the intentional, deliberate moments when you say, I want to meet up with you. Every week we're going to read the Bible and pray together. That's a wonderful expression of discipleship, and I think it has to be done. But discipleship is every time you have contact with another believer. We're shaping each other constantly and consistently. And the only question is whether we're bringing each other towards or away from Christlikeness. How do we be those who help each other to grow more and more in maturity and health and become more like Jesus? And the answer Paul gives here is it has to do with our commitment and connection to the truth. When I speak about the truth, I know that this is a word that's wrapped up in much confusion and dispute these days. Never more, cap- more be- better captured than in the phrase that's so commonly here these days of my truth. A combination of words that I would love to banish from the English language. Because truth is not something that can be unique or subjective to you. Truth is true regardless of the things that you think and feel. It is an objective reality that you either are aligned with or not. And so it's a nonsense to speak of my truth. When Paul's speaking here, he says, rather speaking the truth, he means that which is unchanging. That which is revealed by God to us. That which we could have not have known if God had not spoken to us. That which has been enshrined in the confession of the gospel. That's why in, in chapter 2, in verse 20, he describes the church as that organization which is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He's saying that the church is built on the solid foundation of the truth. It's what Christ himself said about his teaching, isn't it? Do you remember the parable of the two men who built their houses on the rock and on the sand? We either build it on 
the unchanging reality of Christ's truth or we build it on the changing, ever-changing sands of public opinion and worldview. When a church is full of believers who are themselves constantly reaching for deeper understanding of the truth and accepting it and believing it and living in it, that church becomes a discipling, healthy community. I want you to think here of the image of a the wonderful health that can exist within a forest or a woodland or a rainforest. And how the trees are so essential, aren't they, to the vibrancy of the entire ecosystem. And it's an image that the scripture uses about men and women of God, that they can become like oaks of righteousness. It's there in the first psalm. I was reading it this morning. Describes a man of God as someone planted by streams of living water, bearing fruit in its season. A tree. What happens when you remove trees through deforestation? One of the things that happens is that there is a much less abundance of life. And in some places, all life is, almost all life is eradicated. As deserts take the place of woodland and forest. It's something that you're seeing in all parts of the world where trees are relentlessly being chopped down. One of the great dangers is that that becomes an irreversible problem. The Sahara Desert is growing. Why? Because so many trees have been removed that now the, the constant winds that are whipping down from the north to the south blow away whatever topsoil has been left and there is no hope of trees ever growing there again. And it seems to me that churches can be like that where there is an absence of individuals who themselves are deeply rooted in the Word of God and who have grown strong and robust in their faith, then the winds of doctrine and changing ideas sweep in and they, they destroy whatever life was in that place. But where there are churches full of individuals, think of your responsibility, full of individuals, without needing recognition, without needing a position, but who personally so delight in the truth of God and live it out, those individuals become an influence and a discipling influence on many others and cause other saplings to grow. One of my favorite stories to describe this is an account that the great preacher C.H. Spurgeon talks about one of the most formative influences in his life. And it's a very interesting thing because when you think about the impact this man had, he was the most important preacher, by my estimation at least, in the 1800s, in the entire century, in terms of his impact globally through his writings and printed sermons and also through the number of churches that he planted through the pastors that he preached in his college. He, he trained in his college. And he, he, he plastered not so far away from here in Elephant and Castle. And he had tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of subscribers constantly receiving his sermons in the mail. A man who could read a book a day, six books a week, and had a, a photographic memory for the things that he was reading. He was such an encyclopedia of theology and of knowledge. And yet, he says, this is so interesting, 
he tells a story of one of the most formative influences of his life when he was a young man. And he says this, the first lessons I ever had in theology were from an old cook, Mary King. In the school at Newmarket where I was an usher, which was a kind of assistant tutor, she was a good old soul and used to read the Gospel Standard, which must have been a publication that came out, a periodical. She liked something very sweet indeed, good, strong, Calvinistic doctrine, but she lived strongly as well as fed strongly. So she was serving up meals for the boys, and she was also feeding doctrine to them. It says, many a time we have gone over the covenant of grace together. The covenant of grace being a way of describing um, Calvinism, essentially. And she said, and, and we've talked of the personal election of the saints, their union to Christ, their final perseverance, and what vital godliness meant. And I do believe, listen to this, I do believe that I learned more from her than I should have learned from any six doctors of divinity of the sort we have nowadays. He didn't go to theological college. He read and he listened to women like Mary King, this cook, this old cook, unqualified, probably uneducated. And he said, there are some Christian people who taste and see and enjoy religion in their own souls and who get at a deeper knowledge of it than books can ever give them, that they should search all their days. The cook at Newmarket was a godly, experienced woman from whom I learned far more than I did from the minister of the chapel we attended. Now, as a preacher, I find that mildly offensive, the idea that he, he would learn more from the cook than he did from the preaching. But nevertheless, I also celebrate it. And I think, word to God, that perhaps even just a few of you even just a minority of you would take this kind of vision seriously and understand that the more you delight in and are devoted to deepening your faith and your understanding of the truth, the more God is going to use you. I wish I didn't need to preach. I thank God for the calling he's given to me, but in one sense, the task of the preacher is to make himself redundant. Because there is such a, a cherishing, such a delight, such an earnestness that exists in the pew, if I can speak like that. Men and women whose whole lives are devoted to knowing Jesus better, and therefore who influence those around them whether they intend to or not, through the life and lifestyle, through conversation, through the way you express delight in the things of God, and your unshakable commitment and convictions regarding the truth of what we believe. It is common and fashionable these days to be a person who wears their doubts and their questions up front. But the Bible tells you rather to be someone who prizes and wears your convictions, certain of the things you believe, holding fast to the trustworthy word as taught. Those are phrases that come through in Scripture. Let me tell you one last thing as I wrap this up. Along with you understanding your role, along with you cherishing the truth, as fundamental to the contribution you make in the lives of others, 
there is also the necessity of love, of understanding that you have to love and be devoted to your brothers and sisters in Christ in order to be of benefit to them. And this is what he he weaves in here so beautifully. He says in verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way. And then he describes the body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. When each part is working properly, he says, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If you love your body, you nurture it, nourish it, don't you? And when there's love within the body of the church, it has the effect of strengthening and maturing. Now, the thing that I think is so vital to grasp here is this combination that comes through of truth and of love and of there being no separation between the two. Just now when I was speaking about the importance of cherishing truth, I I suspect that a number of you feel almost triggered or alerted to to the danger of becoming truthy people who become a bit religious and and also a bit judgy and a bit cold and a bit harsh and a bit brittle. And I, guarantee, I grant you that is a real danger. That's a real thing. Truth without love is deadly. Truth without love, if we return to the image of an immune system, is the equivalent of an autoimmune disease in which your immune system malfunctions and begins to destroy the body itself. And many people suffer with arthritis or skin conditions or with, neuro, um, with, uh, with nerve conditions and sometimes even deadly problems where the immune system malfunctions and begins to destroy the life of the body. And that can happen within the context of the church. Truth without love is deadly like that. But love without truth is just as deadly. Love without truth renders us insipid and weak and ineffectual, like a jellyfish with no structure. Like a parent who refuses to correct or discipline their child, they claim to love them. But to me, it's an expression of hatred because you don't love your child enough to set them right. And in Scripture, the two dimensions of truth and love are never separated. They belong together because God is truth and God is love. Manifested in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who himself was the mission of of God's love to the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But it also was the embodiment of truth. The word of God incarnate. And you see the dimension, the dynamics of these two things interacting in the way he lives towards others. The relentless compassion and love and devotion he has towards humanity, but also the unshakable, definite, certain expressions and teaching of the truth. So that people were taken aback at times by what they described as the authority with which he taught. Jesus was not vacillating. He was not uncertain. He wasn't sort of shrugging his shoulders and saying, well, we have to debate these things. He came in and he delivered a definite announcement of his own personhood and died for it. Friend, are you seeing with me the vision here? 
a church in which every one of you takes ownership and understands that you are critical and vital to the health and life and maturing of the whole body. Through this combination of devotion to the truth, becoming these oaks of righteousness, and the tenderness and love and care and compassion that motivates you to apply the truth to yourself and then to others. When this happens, when this this mentality, this way of posturing and living permeates the body, that's when the body grows in health. I love it when times when I've seen and witnessed this. Godly individuals or godly couples in the life of our church who seem to have this wonderful effect on people around them. Their own passionate devotion to Jesus, infecting others, helping others walk the narrow road. You can be that person. But listen, let me offer you a word of encouragement as I close. If you really heard the things that I was saying today, there would have been a part of you that might have felt the unbearable weight of this responsibility. How is it that Jesus can look at you and hold you to account for the health of the wider church? You know, if you're anything like me, you say, I can't make the church more like Jesus because I can't make myself more like Jesus. It's a task that is beyond me. But I don't want you to lose sight of the ultimate hope that Paul communicates here when he says that it's our connection to Christ that guarantees our health and maturing. He says that speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. What he's describing there is the life that flows from Jesus and the guarantee that comes from Christ that he is going to perfect his bride, the church. He died for her on the cross. That he might sanctify and cleanse her by the washing of the word, Paul says in Ephesians 5, so that he can present her to himself, a spotless bride. Which means that even if the church is a flawed organization now, and we see its failings and its shortcomings, know this, that the Lord Jesus Christ is utterly committed to its growth and its health and its purification and its perfection. And the invitation is, friend, will you also commit yourself to that vision? Will you give your life, heart and soul to the very mission that Christ is engaged with? So come alongside him and experience the joy of laboring with Jesus in this work. And I promise you that when you do, the life of Christ flows through you. There are times when you experience deep heartache. There are times when you experience disappointment. Never more so than when you see the sicknesses and failings of, of the church. But you also have hope. And you know that what you are doing is accomplishing an eternal work in partnership with Jesus. I want to invite you to bow your heads as we pray together now.